You are listening to the Necropolis Podcast, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HeatMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis! We are back today, back in black and ready to slaughter some cows and throw around some cow patties at these cows. But anyway, like before, we are here uh, just to kind of talk about some overrated bands and not just to shit on them, but to kind of, you know, objectively look at the, the pros and cons of each. You know, granted, in every band, there are good aspects about them. However, uh, it could be a little overrated. So we are slaughtering some sacred cows today again. So uh, we we do have the co-host Shelly from HateMeditations.com, a Metal Legion magazine. Thank you for coming back, Shelly. Not every band. Some bands are just irredeemably shit, but... Not, not the ones we're discussing today, but liturgy, yeah, to be liturgy here. can rap. Liturgy <laughs> rap. So um, that's a good aspect. Like uh, she is a good rapper, so not necessarily good at black metal, but I've seen her do some hip hop, and holy cow, she could she could be up there at Bieber and uh, Jay Z and all that. So um, yes, Shelly, always great to have you. I know uh, um, here in the near future you will be a father, so you will be stepping away from the podcast and. Uh, I, I did kind of line up David Burke as the replacement uh, Marxist doc- doctrinaire um, to fill <laughs> your shoes. And British. Yeah, and British. So we will keep the British accent on here too. So that might solidify in the future. Um, if you're unable to attend, we'll we'll try to pull in David Burke. Um, but uh, yeah, very cool to have you here today. And congratulations on the, the, the baby that's coming. Um, so Tyler... We have Tyler returning. Tyler is a great metal writer and very smart guy. Um, and he's one of those guys uh, who's very thoughtful in his approach um, when he criticizes things. So I'm looking forward to his input today. Thank you for joining, Tyler. Thank you very much for having me. I, too, am looking forward to my input today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, we do have a special guest. Um, we do have Roman from Cromlick. And into oblivion. Um, so Roman is part of the internet canon of extreme metal. So a lot of the the internet groups they they do champion some of the into oblivion and Cromlex. So you know that reputation on the internet is really great. So great to have you here today on this internet podcast, Roman. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, very happy to be on. I'm just joking. Like, it was just an inside joke about that internet canon stuff. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's go ahead and slaughter some sacred cows. Um, so I actually chose Marduk for today. <clears throat> Marduk is a, a second-rate black metal band from Sweden. And uh, overall, I really do not hate Marduk. I just feel like they're way overrated and way overhyped. Um, to kind of get into it, it um we can look at the early albums as being their best albums, everything pretty much until uh, uh, Heaven Shall Burn When We Are Gathered. That's where the downward trajectory really started creeping in. But, uh, you know, when, even when they're at their peak, they're rather second rate compared to their Norwegian counterparts. Um, it's always kind of felt they're a little overrated. And they were one of my uh, gateway bands in the black metal, which I'm fortunate that, you know, they're not totally fecal, but they are quite fecal in some regards. Um, but uh, as they kept continuing, the the black metal, like real like nitty gritty black metal influence, definitely waned over time. Where they became like more of like a heavy metal band in some sections, and 
um, by the time World Funeral came around, I don't even know what to classify it. It's just like poppy, um, black, heavy metal, uh, I suppose. Um, so what are your general thoughts about Marduk? I'll start, Shelley. Uh, yeah, one of the very formative bands for me in, in getting into uh, extreme metal in general Um People tend to shit on the debut, Dark Endless. Um, it's kind of like a second-rate Swedish death metal album. But I, I think there's there's some quality in there. It's not like a spectacular album, but I think there's some interesting riffs. Um, and it, I do re-listen to it about once a year and uh, always enjoy the experience. And obviously, Opus Nocturne is probably the high point of, of their career in general. I think that's an absolutely fantastic like example of Swedish black metal. It's got, you know, the melodic aspects. It's very high intensity, high speed, uh, but it manages to kind of maintain enough variety and kind of churn of different moods that it, you know, engages you um, from start to finish. And kind of, yeah, the Heaven Shall Burn is sort of so-so. And then, yeah, it completely jumps up off a cliff for me by that point. Um, to the point where I really don't know why they're still as kind of infamous and, and popular that, as they are. They're kind of, I don't know, um, just kind of made a career out of doing the same thing over and over again. And I kind of liken them to um, a lot of other metal bands when they reach a certain peak and they kind of run out of things to say, both lyrically and, you know, with their music, where they just start singing about how awesome it is to do what they do. You know, like your, your Man Wars or as Fix started doing that with their latter day albums as well, where they just sing about the genre or whatever. And yeah, Grace Marduk, black metal. Yeah, Marduk kind of indulged in that a bit as well, where it's, you know, the whole Panzer Division Marduk thing as well, where it's just like self-congratulatory, self, self-referential. Um, and yeah, clearly that has an audience because they still they're still going strong. But for me, it's kind of uh it kind of pointless and superfluous as far as like any kind of meaningful artistic statement is concerned. Yeah, it's very derivative, especially in their later albums. Um, and kind of getting into the heavy metal influence, I feel like that was there definitely in Nightwing and Lagonde Dance Macabre. Um, there was a lot of just heavy metal riffs in there. And, you know, that discussion we had about Bathory when black metal actually became black metal um, it's more about reining in those heavy metal influences and embracing a more harsher aesthetic. And Marduk, uh, you know, they're very derivative with their black metal sound, then assimilating a lot of heavy metal influences. And by the time you get to uh, Pansy Division Marduk, um, it's just like this. What is this? This is like uh, grindcore, you know, press punk types of short, concise riffs and you know, just blast beats nonstop. And it's just, it's very incoherent and it's very rough salad And uh, I, I get the charm of it is full of energy and all that. But um, you look at Samath, um, a godless arrogance, you know, that's, you know, the the real version of uh, Pansy Division Marduk, I believe, where they, they get the element of war and just create the most chaotic black metal imaginable. Whereas Marduk is just kind of, they can tell like, uh, Morgan, uh, Morgan, uh, he may not be like the best like uh, riff guy out there, um, and you can definitely tell, like, especially with a lot of the the classical stuff that he tries to put on his guitar work, like in you know Heaven 
Shelburne, when we were gathered, he works on resource scan and things like that. And um, that's always been like a recurring theme through um, Marduk sound is assimilating like some classical music themes to seem like a little bit more highbrow than they actually are. And I don't think they pull it off really well. Whereas their discussion about Celtic Cross, about Tom G. Warrior, you know, with his Requiem and things of that nature, he's really trying to reach far beyond the scope of his capabilities. Um, but he understands his limit limitations and what he can do, he does it to the best of his ability. And I don't feel like Marduk has the the talent in that regard to actually pull it off. So Tyler, any thoughts on Marduk? Yeah, second rate black metal band describes Marduk's good albums. Um, they're bad albums, which is in my opinion, everything after Opus Nocturne um, are, well, I'm not as familiar with their later stuff. I mean, they pretty much followed the same trends that were popular in all um, mid-level mainstream black metal bands, right? Like Satyricon and Watain, uh, incorporating progressively more and more heavy metal elements. Uh I know that the kind of popular image that's had of Marduk that makes them legendary is precisely their era of theirs that I am uh, profoundly unimpressed with, uh, which is the sort of like racing Norse core era uh, where they don't make use of very interesting melodies other than occasionally almost directly lifting like or making sort of allusions to classical themes, as you mentioned, Jason. Um I get that what draws people into that is the energy and the sense of rhythmic hook. But my problem with that is that those things are easy to replicate. And you eventually realize that there are thousands of other bands uh, adopting that same approach because the bar for entry into this band is good because it has a lot of, has high energy and a good rhythmic hook. You know, it, the bar for that is so low. Um, and so you eventually get like this massive sea of, bands that all sound very much alike like you've turned on a very loud air conditioner and uh, nothing to differentiate them because none of them are trying to write any kind of like distinguished like melodic themes um although to make like a brief uh tangent on like uh shelly talking about their debut album uh dark endless uh not so much a comment on the quality of that album, but I always thought it, I thought it was interesting what you said, because something that I frequently told people back when this style was uh, still kind of popular was somewhat at the tail end of its popularity because it really had its heyday in like the late 90s. Um, black and death metal. I would always tell people black and death metal is not a hybrid of black metal and death metal. Black and death metal is old school death metal, but badly done. Um, and, uh, it's interesting that you brought that up with talking about their, uh, their debut album with Marta typically being looked at as like a black metal band, which they were later on and, you know, kind of writing something in that style. But yeah, those are, that about wraps up my thoughts on Marduk. I remember Varg one time saying that the, the Swedes can never like commit all the atrocities that the Norwegians did because they're all pussies. And I always... Figured he was talking about Marduk when he said that. Um, <laughs> they latched on to the image and, you know, the aesthetic and all that. But when it comes to push and shove, yeah, they're not committing crimes and burning down churches and killing people. So, you know, they're, they're not as infamous in that regard. But 
um, they kind of clenched to the coattails of that with the themes that they delve with. And, you know, before we even, uh, or, I mean, we had uh, previously uh, came up with the conception of this part two of Slaughtering the Sacred Cows, and uh, we had chose our bands. So we, I had chose Marduk, and since I did that, we had a, like another episode we had to do on the podcast and things of that nature. But um, uh, the the basis was doing the Roman salute. All of a sudden, it was like, so we can talk about the the supposed like neo Nazism of Marduk, but like I think they're just kind of edge lords. I and they probably do have some sentiments in that regard, but honestly, it's. They're so second rate. I never really put much importance to what they do, whether it's, you know, in their music or political ideologies or anything like that. Shelly, you had something to chime in on? Uh, well, two things. Um, one is Tyler's comment on black and death metal. And I just wanted to clarify, is that is that because it's sort of, it's trying to do death metal, but relying on the conventional melodies of, of black metal, but then not really getting the, frigid austerity of, of black metal so you essentially end up with the worst of both worlds is that what you're getting at generally yeah and it's like a comment on the perspective of death metal at the time because uh something that you still see some uh some remnants of is that there at some point it became the idea it became like the conception of death metal that death metal was um essentially brutal death metal brutal death metal was like fully developed death metal and therefore was what death metal was and that you could look at albums like scream bloody gore or morbid visions or even altars of madness or especially albums like seven churches as death metal in a sense but really they weren't really death metal they were thrash metal they were just really important to the development of the genre but what death metal really was was brutal death metal so then when you had like these black and death metal bands playing something that was largely death metal and rhythmic intensity, but with like a sense of melody to it. They were like, Oh, melody and death metal. That's like new and innovative for death metal. That's not death metal. Doesn't do melody. That's like a black metal thing. So it's black and death metal. And I'm like, nah, man, melody, be, melody being a part of the composition was a huge part of death metal for many years. You fools have just got a really bad idea of what like definitive death metal is. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Sort of like uh, this is why, I, I mean, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but it's why I always hold suffocation as much as I love them to be one of the worst things to happen to death metal because they sparked like an entire trend and an entire image and idea of what death metal was that kind of, well, is one of the worst strains to come out of that whole era. But yeah, it sort of changed the perception of what death metal was and made, yeah, you're right, made like any kind of melodic influence i.e carcass's heart work or at, later at the gates and so on kind of look innovative in some way when really it's just kind of going back back to the early mid 80s to uh, uh try and incorporate some of that melody into kind of you know second rate death metal riffs it's amazing how one slam riff from suffocation spawned a legion of dipshits roman any any thoughts about marduk yeah so oh sorry i can't breathe go on roman <laughs> uh okay sorry about that yeah no worries anyhow <clears throat> what i was going to say is actually first i want to address the whole uh melody thing in black metal and death metal because i actually think that's a pretty interesting topic and i think this is something tyler and i have talked about in the past so at least when i remember getting into black metal initially 
there was, I, I had this idea in my head, maybe because of some of the stuff I heard. Uh, I remember maybe one of the first black metal songs I heard was by 1349. It was that song chasing dragons. And it had, uh, the, uh, the single note tremolo picking in there. And I have really associated that with, you know, primarily with black metal for a really long time. But, you know, then when you go on and really think about it, like, you know, what one of the earliest, most famous single note tremolo picking riffs is, well, the exorcist on possessed seven churches. So like this whole melodic quality of death metal goes back to its very inception. I mean, let's look at Slayer as well. There's plenty of examples of riffs like that all over hell awaits and all of that. Uh, so that's just a brief tangent on, uh, you know, black metal, death metal, black and death metal, et cetera. Uh, I guess what I'll just very quickly say about Marduk here is that uh, my opinions aren't going to differ too much from what's been said. Uh, Opus Nocturne was the best one. Uh, I do. I actually think Dark Endless is, eh, I listen to it every once in a while. It's solid. It's got some riffs. Vocals are good. Uh, as far as heavy metal influence goes, I think you can basically see heavy metal influence going back to <laughs> Marduk's inception in a lot of ways. Maybe that's one of the things that, uh, by the standards that we're talking about here, make it uh, more of a second-rate black metal band. Uh, as far as the early work goes, I think you can actually see a lot of heavy metal influence on, uh, or at least some noticeable stuff like that, on those of the Unlight, on the second one particularly, uh, which, again, much better than anything that came afterwards. And it's funny, you know, you get to, by the time you get to Heaven Shall Burn When We Are Gathered, and the best thing they're doing on that album is, well, yeah, glorification of the black God covering Mus Uh So, yeah, uh, I, you know, it's funny too, because I'm thinking about Panzer Division Marduk. And actually, it's a funny thing you should, uh, we should talk about, you know, the edgelord kind of stuff here. Because I'm looking at the album cover now and they, they change it. I don't know if you guys are aware, but, uh, you know, you look up on Metal Archives, you can't see the, the iconic one with the bullets across it and the uh, Panzer on the front. There's a much more lame version with a, uh, some kind of wreath and a shield, which, you know, as much as that was a terrible album, this album cover looks much more boring. <laughs> so Pansy Division, Marduk is even more pansy. So Roman, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the bassist doing the Roman salute? <laughs> Whatever. It's like uh, you go through Marduk, it's very clear that they like to flirt with that imagery for, you know, for whatever they're doing. I mean, it's not going to, that's not really going to make, musically better or worse at the end of the day it's uh, very much kind of just an attention grabbing thing as far as i'm concerned just to clarify i know why you're saying it's a roman salute but let's call a spade a spade it was a nazi salute and the reason they did it i think is very similar to phil anselmo is that is genuinely what they believe but they're popular enough big enough that they know how to play the line of looking edgy but not actually expressing any opinions that will get them in serious trouble. But then after a few beers or in Final Salmon's case, some, some, what was it? White wine or something, white cider. Um, they will show their true colors and then do performatively do all the things that you're expected to do in, on social media and in, in the media, more broadly speaking to kind of own up to it. They kick the bassist out straight away. But yeah, they they, no, they, they did, know what they they're about. They didn't like. kick the basis. They didn't kick the basis out straight away. They waited until there was a public backlash, and then well, they no, that's what I mean. The moment the footage was released into the public realm, they kicked the basis out. But yeah, you're right. They did. They did wait until there was any kind of outroar online, uh, uproar online, and yeah, I mean, it's almost trivial. So trivial, it's hardly worth talking about as far as this band is concerned because. 
Um, by the way, if you do go on to Panzer Division Marduk and look at other versions, you can get the one with the, the tank and the, the bullet belt. I'm not sure if that's the original one or not, but that's the, that one I, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the one I remember anyway. But yeah, it's interesting that they changed the um, the like default one on Metal Archives as well. Um, but to come, just to come back to the, the music of, of Marduk, um, I guess I'll be the one to kind of own up and say I don't think heavy metal elements in extreme metal is inherently bad like for instance the last episode we did on sacred cows we discussed dissection at length in relation to them being defined as black metal when really they they are essentially like an ex a black metal band playing heavy metal because of the way that they you know express melodies and they have this sense of triumphalism in their music that you just wouldn't get in kind of true blue black metal um now, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think it's sort of down to how you categorize it and where you kind of put it in the, the sort of uh, hierarchy of, of definitions, I suppose. And I think that dissection or example of incorporating heavy metal into a blackened aesthetic done well, um, I think those two classic dissection arms, they really hold up as we discussed last time. Whereas Marduk would be an example of it done very poorly just to kind of make their music accessible enough to retain the level of popularity that they have. I think that that would be the difference that I would, I would point to anyway. As poorly as Cradle of Filth, Shelley? Now. <laughs> Cradle <laughs> of Filth, um, I, I think, I somehow think they're far less insipid than a band like Marduk because Cradle of Filth were only ever like half-assed about even looking remotely legitimate, they made no secrets about the fact that we're a we're a commercial goth come heavy metal come black extreme metal band, but we're after the books. We're doing fancy music videos with colourful album covers, and we write, you know, knockoff Iron Maiden wrists along with some sort of you know Marilyn Manson esque imagery. Like, there's no pretense there that what they're doing is art, quote unquote. So I think I think there's an honesty to Cradle of Filth. And for that matter, Dimmu Borger as well, that, you know, only an idiot would think, oh, well, they portrayed their original, like, you know, ethos of doing something like profound or whatever. Like, Cradle of, that's not never what Cradle of Filth were about. Whereas Marduk, you kind of got a glimmer of it on Opus Nocturne and they, they seem to take themselves a little bit more seriously. I think that would be the difference for me anyway. That makes sense. There's a, something that I've noticed in a lot of heavy metal bands from speed metal to death metal to black metal, which is uh, as they grow older, they uh, commonly revert to their influences. And I mean, obviously their influences are present even in their early music, right? But it seems like when heavy metal bands are younger, especially when they start their music out when they're teenagers, they're much more creative. And maybe they were also more creative because they came from a time where you couldn't uh, lift influences from as many sources via the internet. I don't know. Um, but uh, when they get older, I don't know if it's through a sort of dying down of that creativity due to the accumulation of adult responsibilities or if it's um, an issue of uh, they kind of have a lot of nostalgia for their glory days and that translates into nostalgia for the music they were listening to at that time, less so than the music that they were making at that time. Um, but it seems like a lot of those bands, like, they start to make stuff that sounds more like the stuff they were influenced by when they get older. So it starts to sound more like earlier heavy metal or even sometimes rock bands. 
that they liked when they were a kid. Uh, I've seen a lot of heavy metal bands uh, and extreme metal bands uh, do that. Yeah, I think yeah. uh, uh, Roman, did you have something to say before we go to Shelly? Yeah, actually, I, I just wanted to chime in here briefly. Uh, so, uh, Tyler, I believe you're uh, you're quoting a well-known quote about uh, uh, the uh, distance between the band's roots uh, is is reduced by half every uh, between every eighteen months. You know, the longer it goes, the more you sound like their influences. That's uh, that's a review. I think you're uh, quoting right there that we uh, all remember. Uh, I was going to say that I actually agree. Shelly here, I don't, I don't think heavy metal influence is necessarily a bad thing either. I was using it in the context of uh, what we're, you know, the references we were making within the context of this, uh, this program here. But uh, I think, you know, yeah, heavy metal influence is bad when it's derivative and uninteresting. And, you know, when it's not being used, you can use many different aspects of genres as tools in the toolbox here. Uh, now, I think if we're talking about you know, heavy metal influence uh, in contradiction to the developments, you know, if it, if it stops the developments in the music that death metal and black metal have made in the genre, you know, if it kind of, you know, stunts its growth, so to speak, or returns it back to an earlier form that's not as advanced, I think that's, that's a legitimate criticism of heavy metal influence in the death metal and black metal, particularly when it makes it very rock sounding. Anyways, that was about it. Yeah, I think that's actually a way more articulate way of putting it than what I was getting at. But I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's not, and you could you could say that about any influence. It's not um, the fact that you used it. Full stop. It's it's how it works in the context of whatever composition um, we're talking about. Um, but to to go back to the nostalgia point, um, Tyler, I think I think it's a combination of the two. But to take a very cynical reading as well, I think for over ten years or so. Uh, extreme metal has been obsessed with the quote-unquote old school that's both in black metal and death metal and yeah thrash as well um and i think a lot of older bands that were there in the so-called glory days have realized they can cash in on that by returning to their roots or whatever or pretending to at least and say like yeah all of these younger bands who are kind of aping off the reputation of the classics well we were actually there and we're going to release an album that is you know returning to our roots or whatever. Um, so they can kind of ride the wave of, of that trend that doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon, even though I wish it would die. Speaking of riding on a trend, we should start talking about the band that you picked for this episode, Shelley. If everyone is all right to move on. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. I wrote a note in the chat. It's like, yeah, let's go to the next band. It's been 20 minutes discussing Marduk. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely ready for something else, and it, we didn't really say much pop, like much that's positive about Marduk, and I'm okay with that. So uh, let's go ahead. I have one. I have one thing that's positive uh, before we move on, um, and that is you're probably going to disagree with me on this, but I think some of the side projects of the members of of Marduk are far more interesting than Marduk themselves. By that I mean uh, Abruptum, even like the the later yeah, ambient well albums. A kind of interesting. I think the latest Funeral Mist album is better than anything Marduk have done for the last twenty years. Um, there is talent there. It's just it doesn't express itself in in this outfit. Didn't it die? The midget from Abruptum. He he died, but um, the other guy all um, kind of carried the project on, and he released two solo albums, just like minimalist noise ambient stuff. It's not like it won't blow your mind, but it's it's interesting enough. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for some positive attributes about Marduk, which unfortunately isn't about Marduk itself. But uh, <laughs> what is your band that you chose? Because all this talk about heavy metal and such is like, I'm really thinking. That's what I was this. saying. This it's is a your, good segue. This is your domain, Shelly. Let's go uh, into it. Yeah. Well, have you guys heard of a band called Dark Throne? <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, Dark Throne were a. One of the sort of like most important black metal bands uh, from Norway, um, and they're incredibly influential. And um, they released three, possibly four, depending if you count Panzerfaust. There seems to be a bit of a Panzer theme going on here. Um, of the most influential black metal albums in the genre's history, um, and I also really rate Soulside Journey, their death metal debut album as well. I think it's a, a really interesting. Um, kind of early foray into death metal going truly kind of weird and experimental. Um, but the reason I picked Dark Throne is because I don't want to be a contrarian and say they were never actually that good. They were, of course, incredible. Um, but much like Suffocation, they were responsible for a slew of second-rate kind of phoning it in B-tier black metal throughout the late 90s and noughties where every band under the sun wanted to imitate dark front because their formula was actually quite easy to to replicate the under a funeral moon transylvanian hunger format but i don't really want to hold that against dark front because it's not their fault they can't control how their art is interpreted what i wanted to call out was sort of the latter day dark throne and i think the watershed would be the album the cult is alive released in 2006, where again, they did the thing that I mentioned earlier, where they sort of bought into their own mythology and they kind of thought, we can we can make a reputation of being bitter old men that kind of hate the scene that we come from. And I know they famously claimed to do that, but then they realized they could possibly monetize it and sort of reestablish their reputation as a relevant voice within the heavy metal community. And all of the albums that followed this mixture of classic heavy metal, crust punk, some spare parts from black metal, maybe, and yeah, motorhead and a bit of old speed metal or whatever kind of, they don't, they don't just leave a sour taste in my mouth because they're intolerably boring, but it's just them trying to recast themselves as like the eccentric black metal daddies who kind of come in every now and then release a silly album that is clearly a little bit tongue-in-cheek and everyone goes, have you heard the new Dark for an album? Isn't it great that they're now doing a Black Sabbath album as they did on Eternal Hails? Or they're, oh, they're going back to real heavy metal as they did with the Underground Resistance. Or they're doing cross-punk as they did with Dark Thrones and Black Flags. It's a cheap novelty designed to rehabilitate an artist that lost relevance a very long time ago. And if they're allowed to release albums, of course they are. Like they can do whatever they want with their um, more senior years. But the fact that they're still considered a relevant voice of an extreme metal, it just it just gets to me. <laughs> it really does. You don't have to apologize, man. I always think it's funny and I get the I get that it's colloquialism to hear people say things like qualify their statements with, well, they're allowed to release albums. Yeah, and you're allowed to have your opinion that those albums are terrible. You know, it's not like by you saying that they're terrible that you're asking for there to be formed some sort of government body called the uh, instant, you know, the your 
the Bureau of whether albums should be allowed to be released to the public or not. And if you disapprove of an album, if you think it's bad, that Bureau is going to come and seize every last copy and uh, throw it into like an industrial uh, grinder or something, you know, like <laughs> saying that you say something is bad is not saying that you think it should be eliminated from existence. And people act like it is almost as like a straw man to be like, well, I'm going to pretend you're taking a much more extreme position than you actually are so that I don't have to act. So I don't have to actually address the criticisms you're making because I don't want to like accept the idea that someone could have legitimate criticisms of something I like, you know? Um, but yeah, like you're, you're allowed to have opinions. And by the way, I agree with all of them. That was a pretty excellent <laughs> view of Dark Throne. Well, yeah, I'll, before I open it out to everyone else as well, I'll just comment on the character of Fenris as well, because he's not, he's an intelligent guy and he has some really interesting kind of, um, really interesting perspectives on what happened in Norway in the early nineties. Um, and the stuff in like the documentary until the light takes us, um, some of the interviews in that are, are well worth watching. Um, but you kind of, you contrast that with who he is now, because until the light takes us was released quite a few years ago now where he is kind of just playing up to being this eccentric kind of Norwegian old aging metalhead. And it feels a little bit like a pretense um, to kind of buy into this mythology of Dark Throne as this old eccentric kind of uh, sage of black metal or whatever. And it's for me, it's sort of they lost relevance a long, long time ago. Any band that imitates classic era Dark Throne is probably reliably very boring and derivative and doesn't really have anything to say. And anything that Dark Throne has done in the last 20 years bears no relevance to anything that has happened within extreme metal this side of the millennium and the fact that they still hold that standing within the scene as if they should be listened to um is it is it is irritating when otherwise intelligent people drop everything to listen to the new dark for an album um that i'll leave that there and then i will hand out to the floor yeah, Roman, will you go ahead and chime in with your input before I flip the table? Yeah, okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, what I would say here is I think uh, bringing up Until the Light Takes is, in is interesting, and I, I think I have this commentary to make on the arc of Dark Throne as a band. Uh, but what I will say first before that is the whole, you know, when we're talking about imitators, we're mainly talking about Transylvanian hunger. And I remember, you know, I love Soul Side Journey. Honestly, I love Goat Lord. Uh, I think even with the weird vocals, I think the riffs and the song construction on that album is amazing. Uh, and I all I sometimes lamented that they didn't go further on that path because, you know, my preference in terms of taste is very much, you know, the early 90s death metal that's a little, uh, well, you know, at the gates, cenotaph, you know, that kind of stuff, but also Demulich and other things like that. And that kind of like more weird experimental progressive death metal that they were doing, I would have you know, I, I used to lament that they never continued down that path. But then, of course, the Dark Throne stuff is classic. Uh, Fenris himself has pointed out that if people didn't imitate Transylvanian Hunger, because he was called out on this once, he's like, well, I think they a lot of people imitate Demisterius Dom Satanus, for example. Uh, you know, Watain would be a very good example of that. So point being, there would have been, there are always classic albums and there are always hordes of imitators. Uh, so. You know, I, I don't know if we can fault Dark Throne for that necessarily, but uh, going on the arc of Fenris as a person as pertains to Until the Light Takes Us and the heavy metal stuff and all of that, I remember when 
me and the guys here saw until the light takes us in Toronto back when it came out, you know, you have to remember that movie came out like 2008, 2009, something. And the interviews were, you know, for a couple of years before that. So when you're listening to him talk, I think it's like post, like it's around the time of hate them, sardonic wrath, that kind of era. And Fenris is talking about how early on in his career, he wanted to make music for uh, people that might be strengthened by, uh, you know, occult satanic imagery or whatever. And he's like, now I'm depressed. So I just want to make music that makes people want to kill themselves. Uh, <laughs> this is what he said. There. And so he, if you go through it and if you read interviews and things like that, he definitely struggled with a lot of depression around that time period. And I feel that there was this therapeutic aspect to him going uh, to him retreating into his childhood essentially and bringing up all these old heavy metal influences. And I think that was his way of dealing with a lot of this stuff because maybe the, yeah, the scene didn't go in the direction that he wanted it to, you know, it became popular or it didn't uh, maintain ideological purity or whatever, because, you know, you go back and there's that youthful vigor, there's that elitism, there's that spirit to it. That's naive, maybe perhaps or childlike, but it's still, it's still there. Whereas later on, you know, it just becomes, you know, mass produced, you know, mass produced music that's popular in a way that he probably never even intended. Regardless, uh, I will tie this off by saying later Dark Throne is. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I've I've actually listened to every Dark Throne album that's come out ever just out of curiosity. I'm always curious to see what he'll do. Because... I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Put yourself through that. Yeah, no, well, you know, because the thing is, at the end of the day, they're still good musicians and there will always be like an interesting moment here or there. But yeah, aside from that, I think it's always interesting as a curiosity. Maybe I'm just picking up on that novelty thing you were talking about right there. Yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll just come back on that before I, I hand over to Jason. Um, it's interesting you talk about like the, the period when, yeah, the Until Light Takes Us interviews were happening because I I could totally sympathize with that because it's well documented his opinions on what became of black metal and uh varg's opinions as well and between like him varg and euronymous is like three of the the most kind of vocal um voices within that scene as to what they thought black metal should be and it's borne out by the music that they produced as well um you can you can almost chart the the thought processes of, of fenris as he sees black metal developed through the late 90s and 2000s. Um, so I could totally understand where he's coming from with that. And like I said, I don't begrudge him expressing uh, uh, whatever he's going through in his music. I think it's more, and as with a lot of the bands that we raise on these episodes, it's more how it's received in the metal community that I guess I'm trying to call out here. I think late, it's sort of latter-day Fenris has started to play up to that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, what I'm really calling out is this kind of the reverence that we're supposed to have for these musicians that I think have kind of lost all relevance. And I think actually Nocturnal Culto is what had a really interesting quote on a, a documentary that was made before Until Light Takes Us called Once Upon a Time in Norway. Um, I think it's still up on YouTube. It's in Norwegian, but there's a version with subtitles, which again, it just goes over the events in Norway again, but a much more low budget version of Until Light Takes Us. And there's interviews with early members of Mayhem, um, a few of the other guys from that scene. Um, and there's a, there's interviews with the Dark Front guys as well. And Nocturno Culto kind of right at the end of the documentary when they've gone through all of the, the murders and the, the atrocities and so on, he just says 
kind of mournfully, I'd, I'd love to just go back to playing death metal because with death metal, you don't have to think. And by that, he meant clearly you don't have to get engaged with all of the politics, the occultism, the, the controversy. You just focus on writing riffs and music and, you know, going wherever your creativity takes you. And it's kind of almost uh, tragic in a way that these otherwise creative individuals were swept up into this much larger global culture when really they were very insular, very kind of thoughtful people that just wanted to focus on, you know, making some interesting music. And that's ultimately all they wanted to do. And I think they achieved that on their, you know, canonical albums. But it, yeah, it's the tragedy of later Dark Throne and it expresses something tragic about black metal more widely after like 1999, if you're going to use an arbitrary carve. But Jason, did you have any thoughts on, on Dark Throne? I'm sure you do. Yeah, I might have one or two. Um, <laughs> so I actually view like a Dark Throne had some pretty decent material all the way through Hate Them. Um, I think the first track, Rust, off of Hate Them is really good. Actually, I picked that CD up from a dollar from my friend Todd back in the day because he hated it so much because it didn't sound like, you know, like a Transylvania hunger under a funeral moon or anything like that. But uh, um, yeah, so I, I won that CD for a dollar and I just really like that first track, Rust. But um, I honestly hold the view that Soulside Journey is by far the best album released by Dark Throne and that they should have stayed a death metal band because I think if they would have stayed a death metal band, they would have elevated, especially like Scandinavian death metal, to a higher level. Um, and when it comes to the major Norwegian black metal bands, I view Dark Throne as being the worst of the bunch. I actually put uh, Gorgoroth higher and Mayhem higher than uh, the Dark Throne. Um, of course, you know, Emperor Burzum and Immortal or, you know, at the top. But uh, so one thing that I've always noticed about Dark Throne is the fan base that usually like Dark Throne is their favorite black metal band. And primarily it's women that hold that view. And when I've been at uh, shows like black metal shows, it's primarily women who wear Dark Throne T-shirts um, so I'm under the impression that Dark Throne is for the girls. So, Ugh, Jason, why is that a bad thing? What boo, boo, women bad, women well, bad. What I'm saying is, <laughs> it's probably more accessible um, as a whole. So you think women like accessible music? Yes, hundred percent. Yeah. Jesus Christ. There, Shelley, I've even encountered very left-wing theorists who uh, say that uh, like a, an appreciation for like more popular forms or accessible forms of music is a feminine trait. They just don't view that as a negative thing. They view that as a strength. Yeah, I mean... I, I mean, I don't read all left-wing theory as if it's like gospel. Uh, I critique left-wing theory as much as I would right-wing theory. I don't want to derail the discussion, Jason. So, so let's move on. But uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't hold the the fact that you have some anecdotal evidence on the fact that more women wear dark front t-shirts means they're more accessible. I think that's um, no. I, 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 that's have a, a, I have another factoid I want to throw in too. No, go ahead. Go ahead. This is awesome. Yeah. So, about ten years ago, back when uh, the hipsterdom stuff was around in full force, you know, they kind of hijacked black metal for a little bit. And primarily, it was that Dark Throne. Why? Because there's no controversy around Dark Throne. There's no murders. There's no 
uh, super edgy stuff. It's just, you know, satanic, occult, black metal. It's like, you know, Satanism is pretty much like what Christianity used to be 50 years ago. So, except. Well, this is the other thing I was actually going to call out is there was controversy around Dark Throne. They said anyone that doesn't like what was it, Transylvanian hunger should be patronized for their obvious Jewish behavior. And it used to say true Aryan black metal. Oh, yeah. But the hipsters conveniently forgot that Fenrir's ever said that because. Oh, look at how funny and eccentric he is. And Transylvanian Hunger is a really easy album to imitate. So I'll work that into my brand of like stale indie come post rock or whatever. Um, they kind of forgot that Dark Throne did buy into this. Just none of them were actually put into jail. I think Immortal were the only ones that were completely unstained by by all of that. Immortal is a little too extreme for hipster taste, though. Like it's not as accessible as the, the textures of Dark Throne. Um, Maybe I I don't I wouldn't say at the heart winter's that extreme I just say it's too heavy metal for hipsters they wanted to I don't really you know, consider the, that an immortal album you know Blizzard Beast the last one um, it can't have that uh, atmosphere of navel gazing uh, Dark Throne can even their classic material can kind of have that sense of this is for someone with very uh, deep problems you wouldn't understand uh immortal doesn't have that on their early material that's more proper black metal or on their later material that's straight up heavy metal uh so hipsters don't no like i guess it. it's just like snow is awesome so are mountains fuck you whereas yeah dark throne can be quite introspective at times um but to, to come back to the music actually uh i do agree that Soulside journey is, a, is an incredible death metal album but i also think I kind of on their black metal material, I kind of veer between Transylvanian Hunger because I see that as like one of the archetypes of, of black metal along with some of Burzum's material from that era. But I do continually return to A Blaze in the Northern Sky because it, it's a it's one of the earlier of that style of black metal from Norway, but also it still has the the hangover from from death metal. And it has some really interesting kind of weird undulating riffs in it that you know, they, they eventually shed on under a funeral moon, but it kind of retains that the weird edge of Soulside Journey. And yeah, again, it's probably the least imitated of like the classic Dark Throne albums for that reason. Hey, Shelley. Yeah. Um, Uh-oh. What do you think about people spelling Dark Throne with a space between Dark and Throne? Are they, they poser hipsters that should leave the hall? I couldn't give a shit. Um, I know that when they released Dark Thrones and Black Flags, it was spelt with spelt as two words rather than one. But uh, I, just, I, I I don't really care how people want to spell Dark Throne. I just I just want to sit in my little hole and listen to the the classic albums and never hear another single thing that Fenris releases and never be told to listen to a new Dark Throne album either. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Um, <laughs> like strongly, I don't. I kind of agree, like largely with your assessment. Um, I think that. You know, where Roman talked about, oh, there's been lots of imitators, you know, for almost any classic metal band. That is true. And that should be remembered by people who want to blame Dark Throne too harshly. I think what separates Dark Throne, in a sense, from other classic bands that have been imitated is that they created, oh, excuse me, an especially convenient formula for, uh, for, uh, to be imitated. They simplified metal to a large degree and uh it was um it was utilized like extensively you know i, I think i saw an interview with a death metal group that was talking about how of um, an older death metal group that was talking about how they weathered the days where death metal was being supplanted by black metal 
And they said, well, you know, when black metal musicians first came around, like we knew of it back then. And we knew that they were criticizing us for becoming too mainstream, um, which we thought was ludicrous. You know, you know, they basically had the idea like, well, we weren't Nirvana. So how could you call us mainstream? You know, um, and they said, and uh, what's funny is that in the long run, uh, ironically, black metal ended up getting much larger than any other genre of heavy metal, uh, any other subgenre of heavy metal, including death metal, you know. And um, I think the ad, this, I think I saw that this interview was like before the advent of like deathcore and stuff like that. So maybe actually in the end, death metal ended up having much more of a mainstream impact because of group, because of you know, like trends like deathcore and whatnot. But at the time, you know, what he said was roughly accurate. Um, so I think that in that sense, like Fenrir could perhaps feel either because uh, you know he's actually been told this by others or just out of a sort of like self-conscious paranoia you know almost like a neuroticism that like he's being um, called to task for this happening to black metal or at the very least just feel upset that even if he's not being held responsible that the music didn't do it at all what he the you know didn't adhere at all to the visions he had for it when he was a young hopeful you know teenager um and uh, I got a lot of that sense in Until the Light Takes Us. I feel like the filmmakers outright knew that was the main story of their documentary, even down to the choice of that, uh, what's that group called, Mum uh, song in the soundtrack, Ballad of the Broken Birdie, Little Birdie Lost Its Voice. I, I really feel like all of that was intended to reference Fenrir. Uh, and um, Fenriz, or however you want to say his name, and uh, yeah, I think that also explains part of his career afterwards. I do think that it's kind of uh, perhaps somewhat out of bitterness or out of attempt, an attempt to maintain relevance. And I, I find it uh, irritating for the same reason. Yeah, I mean, it would be absurd for me to blame Dark Throne for the, the influence, the negative influence that they had. Uh, I, you know, Transylvanian Hunger is one of my favorite albums. It always has been since the day I heard it. Um, and it would be absurd for me to say that it's his fault what happened i mean that that that's yeah that's just not not a coherent view i think the frustration i have like i kind of said is is dark for almost represent the tragedy of the promise of black metal that kind of went unfulfilled in a lot of ways and they're they're kind of like um what's the word uh, a placeholder for kind of everything that went wrong with the scene if you ignore like the hyper commercial stuff like cradle of filth and so on is the the hordes of imitators the kind of quote-unquote invasion from hipsters and so on um it kind of all stems back to this entity uh that dark Throne was and at some point they started to just kind of give up and buy into it and then say well if we can work some of the influences that we have from when we were kids you know some early heavy metals and punk and whatever then why not just kind of you know, dance for the circus in a way. And um, the fact that otherwise intelligent fans kind of can't see that that's, that's what, what's happening kind of, it just, it makes me sad, but it's not, it's not Fenris's fault. It's not Nocturnal Coltel's fault. Well, Fenris but, um, said big sunglasses equal good band. And I, I don't really agree with that. Um, so are we pretty much wrapped up on the Dark Throne? Can we move on to the next band? We are, Let's unless anyone else has anything else. We can move on. All right, oh, Tyler. I, I believe you have a French band. 
Um, bonjour, bonjour, and I am drinking some Gruet, which unfortunately is from New Mexico, not France. But uh, let's say, uh, let's say, Tyler, uh, which band did you choose today to slaughter? Oh man, so I chose Gojira because Gojira they represent a trend in metal that has bothered me since I was very for years and that's the trend of telling me being presented to me with with very little exaggeration that a band is innovative creative uh very thoughtful intelligent what they're playing is on a technical level very difficult uh on a uh, sort of creative level like using sounds and chords and things that no one has ever thought of or in ways no one has ever thought of their lyrical subject matter is incredibly deep and profound and difficult to comprehend and poetic on a um, level that, you know, is beyond just like common music. Um, and then I go and I'm like, man, well, you know, it's a lot of hype. Let me go listen to this band. I go and listen to it. Sounds like uh, Breaking Benjamin with harsh vocals every time without fail. And it almost leads me to feel like I'm being gaslighted by society. Like, am I going crazy and have are my ears... Like there's something either mentally wrong with me or physically wrong with my ears where what I'm hearing is not at all, like does not at all sound like what everybody else is hearing. And that's why they're saying things that seem so wildly out of place. Or does everybody think that they can pull the wool over my eyes or they think that I'm an idiot or something? No, they're or weed does... heads. They're weed heads. They <laughs> the weed and they like to see the whales. Um, so that's the <laughs> primary audience of Gojira is the weed heads how is gojira any different from tool i ask that to you everybody else on this podcast like is gojira really sound all that different from tool uh besides having more harsh vocals they really don't in my opinion yeah i mean i, I consider you know what we were talking about earlier before this episode that uh both bands are old rock they're not metal um so, yeah, I, I see how they're very similar. And it kind of goes back to the debate about what constitute, constitutes metal when you get into, like, Black Sabbath versus Blue Cheer. Um, Gojira is definitely on the Blue Cheer side where they have the aesthetics of, like, distorted guitars and things like that and harsh vocals. But uh, they don't have the gravitas of Black Sabbath, the seriousness, the heaviness that creates uh, truly heavy music. So... I think we can trace this all the way back to the, the beginning of metal and what was metal and what wasn't metal back in the uh, late 60s or the 70s. So um, what are your thoughts on that, Shelley? Uh, well, uh, Roman, do you want to come in before I say anything? Uh, I don't really have much to say about Gojira, except they're incredibly obnoxious and uh, much like <laughs> and much like Tool, uh, both cases, alternative rock posing as prog rock posing as metal. Uh, I have basically not much more to say than that. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Um, I was almost the same in that I was a bit confused as to Tyler's like choice to actually pick them as a as sacred cow for slaughtering because, like, ultimately we're talking about the music that we don't like or the music that we hate. And for me, the music that I hate, it sounds really similar to the music that I love because it, the reason I hate it is because it's doing, it's manipulating or distorting something that I feel is artistic. 
for instance, like Taylor Swift, I don't hate her because it has it has no relation to anything that I am remotely interested in artistically. Um, it's it's just on a different planet. And I kind of put Gojira in that category of like they're so far removed from the kind of thing that I'm into that I'm almost sort of confused as to why we're sort of picking them as a sacred cow. But when you kind of pointed out that you're told that they're innovative a lot, uh, it did sort of flick a light bulb. It's like, oh, yeah, they fit into that kind of dream theatre tool um, category of kind of an opuff as well of pseudo brainy metal that people think will blow your mind the moment you hit play. Um, and in preparation for this, I listened to a couple of their albums. Uh, thanks, mate. It was an awful experience. Um, I listened to uh, the one with the whale on the cover, unless they all have whales. And then I listened to the, their latest album. And there, there wasn't much difference between the two that I could discern. Fair enough, I only listened to them once. Uh, but yeah, it was exactly that, where you kind of get this chimera of groove metal, the occasional like mellow death riffs, some a bit of new metal, and then some kind of almost grungy vocals every now and then. And they're clearly like talented musicians and all the talented musicians, as are Meshuggah and Oprah from Dream Fits. You, you have to be talented to do that. But there's no there's no drive, there's no creativity, there's no soul to it. And I, I did just jump onto their metal archives page and they're described as progressive do uh, progressive groove metal. And progressive and groove in the same sentence is almost a contradiction in terms for me, because to be prog progressive is almost like in defiance of anything remotely groovy, remotely predictable or remotely kind of headbangable. You have to do something really weird and angular and um, dissonant, both rhythmically and kind of melodically as well to qualify uh, as progressive. But Clearly, the, the term has kind of been appropriated um, ever since like the days of Dream Theater to mean something much more um, diluted, I think. And yeah, Gojira really slide into that that category. Um, but yeah, until until we did this episode, I've been lucky enough not to really pay attention to them in any significant way. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're quote unquote metal for people who don't like metal. Um so, uh, Roman, you say you don't really have much to say on Gojira. If Into Oblivion ever got, like, a touring opportunity of Gojira, would you take him up on it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> that was no hesitation, just a laugh and a nope. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I, I, I stand by that answer, yes. Yeah, uh, Shelly, you really hit the nail on the head with talking about them being described as innovative. It's the, as I put it, gaslighting effect, because I can never get a straight answer from fans. And I don't know if they, if they know the act that's being played or not, like if they actually believe that or if they realize that it just sounds like alternative rock or stadium rock, but they just want to hold on to like the progressive terms to so that they can just you know use that as a shield to deflect any criticism but it, it really does make me feel like i'm losing my mind sometimes because i you know i hear all of this praise and i listen to the music and i'm like it just sounds like breaking breaking benjamin again with uh you know choppier rhythms and distorted vocals um to the point that like progressive almost seems to become just a gateway in metal music for alternative rock or stadium rock uh, groove metal actually honestly ends up being kind of a similar gateway. It just ends up being a gateway for metal, for blues influences, uh, you know, um, 
and uh, like alternative rock influences and stadium rock influences. You know, if you're a groove metal band, those things are are acceptable. Then you you're not like a poser or a mainstream band uh, because you're groove metal, and that's like an, that's like a legitimate underground metal subgenre because of Pantera, right? Except for all of us who hate Pantera, you know, we obviously disagree with that whole thesis but that's what it, it ends up being a similar gateway is my point well yeah it's it's sort of it goes all the way back to metallica and probably earlier in a way in that metallica were a quote-unquote legitimate metal band at one point but they kind of bought into the stadium rock aspects of their sound heavily and at, at that era late 80s early 90s pantera kind of swept the rock metal world away with their brand of kind of punchy groove metal and for me, it's like I I don't listen. To, I don't really like that. Um, I like some aspects of Metallica, but I genuinely genuinely tend to ignore it. But I think I I like quite a lot of you know accessible rock, um, you know stadium and themic rock if I'm in the right mood. But I think I always know where it stands as like you know it is designed to be accessible. It is designed to be memorable and anthemic and simple. Um, but the fact that bands like Gojira and Opeth are kind of held up as they are that, they might have a bit more bells and whistles on them, but they are essentially that. And the fact that people hold them up to be something else is what I really take issue with. It's a bit like when we were talking about Dark Throne, is Gojira have a right to exist and people have a right to like them. But don't don't kid yourself that they're somehow innovative or imaginative or in any way musically interesting compared to the the wealth of like imaginative creative music that's out there it's a similar issue i take with like modern enslaved as well people that have never heard a fucking yes or king crimson album kind of hold up enslaved as some revolutionary brand of psychedelic come folk viking black metal and i'm like no it's it's this awful chimera of like hacked up pieces of music history stitched together in the most ugly like incoherent ways imaginable and the reason i haven't picked enslaved as a sacred cow is because i can't really form a coherent sentence because i just start seeing red when i start speaking about them but i well, kind it of sounds I like you're place... listening to too much pantera if you're seeing red well yeah uh but i kind of place gojira in the same category uh maybe not quite as offensive as enslaved to me because i haven't listened to gojira that much but yeah just uh everything is designed to make intelligent like make people think that they're listening to intelligent music when actually they're just being force fed the same old warm diarrhea, but just with slightly more packaging on, on it, you know. It's, it's, it's exactly like what I was meaning when I, I was saying the word weed heads, like potheads. When like a pothead says something, you know, it's like, wow, that's really profound, man. And when they're all high and shit, but you look at it like with objective discernment is like no that is not profound you're fucking high get out of here bro um so yeah <laughs> my general thoughts on uh the high brownness quote-unquote of gojira which there is none it's just potheads potheads with amplifiers you know singing about the whales which you know i, I i'm against you know like genocide of the whales too because they are rather intelligent creatures they are mammals um like I would hold a whale in higher regard than I would hold a shark because sharks are pretty much just ocean uh, garbage disposals, whereas whales are, are mammals and they probably have like a wider range of emotions and all of that. So, um, but I do like tuna fish. I know like tuna fish was like it was made from dolphins at one point in time, and now it's you know actually tuna. But um, 
Yeah. Uh, mentioning whale core as well, uh, I'd kind of lump Mastodon in. I know they're slightly even more poppy, like a modern day Metallica or whatever, but I don't know what it was. There was a slew of like pseudo progressive brainy metal bands that just were really into whales for a time. <laughs> yeah. And do you hear about the orcas that are killing people now? Like they're attacking boats. Well, they haven't killed anyone yet. It's like off the coast of like somewhere in the Mediterranean. There are some orcas going around attacking boats. Um, you can look it up. It's reoccurring over and over and over. So that's uh, learned behavior that they're teaching each other just to attack the boat. So maybe they've been listening to that Gojira and smoking some uh, weed. <laughs> Gojira and Mastodon are on tour together right now, actually. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Uh, that's probably um, why they're attacking. It's like our, our, our bands are out there together. It's amplifying the gravitas of the, the whaleness and... Yeah, I don't know. The stupid fucking music, but yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting that they're both touring together, and the orcas decided to attack right now. Um, yeah, but uh, I, I like how's this for some metal lyrics though? I hold my inner child within and tell him not to cry. Sounds like death of philosopher. <laughs> that's that's some Gojira lyrics right there. <laughs> All right. Any any final thoughts on Gojira? Because I think we've had a hit a brick wall with them. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't have any final thoughts. Just to say, like, there's so much music out there. You have all of, you have a wealth of music to call upon. It just even within metal, even within extreme metal, stop settling for less. That's that's all I'll say for for anyone that thinks they like Gojira. All right, yeah, fair enough. All right, Roman, you chose a band, and it's another one that just made us kind of scratch our heads a little bit. Um, so you have a sacred cow you wish to slaughter today, Roman. What is yep. that sacred cow, and why? <clears throat> All right, so yeah, I chose Borknagar. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's a bit of an interesting one to pick <clears throat> on a number of levels. Uh, I think you know, it's funny that uh, the beginning of this, you talked about how you know we're talking about bands being overrated and such how we're not necessarily well except in the case of gojira just now where we we're just clearly just trashing them uh, you know sometimes you know you listen to something and you're like well you point out the elements that uh, are good could be good and then you point out its flaws and i feel like this is actually a pretty good this is pretty fertile ground for that because and I, I don't even know how many people even listen to Bork Nagar anymore, but I remember they were really popular when, uh, you know, when I was getting into metal anyhow. And the thing is, you know, I'm looking at it. I have to, I have to fully credit uh, the vocalist in Cromwell, Kevin, for uh, this suggestion, actually, because we were talking about it before I went on here. <laughs> so, but uh, it's, uh, it, it's a band that based off a lot of things you would imagine would be much better than they actually are. Uh, the main songwriter, uh, man, I, I can't pronounce, I can't pronounce Norwegian names, but we'll just say, I'll just say Oystein, whatever his name is from, uh, he was in molested and molested was a visionary death, uh, death metal band. Nothing sounds like it. The closest thing I've heard sound to anything like molested. And this isn't even in a compositional area, but just that they did a riff that sounded like them. Um, that last trenchant album that came out one of the songs what was uh, what was the song uh anyways it had a riff in it that was like a molested worship riff and i'd never heard that before in my life so i think part of the uh 
part of the issue here is the very big letdown from the previous project, which is ironic considering he said that he did work in guard because he wanted to expand his you know horizons beyond what he thought was possible in uh, in molested. Um, uh, burning spires and mercury it was uh the one of the last riffs in that song that sounds totally like something off uh off blood drum or stormfold or something so anyways you know you have this great songwriter from molested if you look at the lineup of the first bork nagar album it's it has you know it, it's a norwegian super group basically it's got like you know you have a guy from work you have a guy from gorgoroth in there you have well olver's not good but uh you have a guy from olver in there um you know the uh not on yeah actually yeah on that album yeah you have the guy from uh you have a keyboardist from enslaved you know and and guitarist you know this like the ingredients should all be here for something that's you know spectacular uh reality is that's not really what ends up happening you know bork nagar is a classic example of a band that while everybody talks about them as being you know well while they get pushed out there fairly well or at least used to they they're just they their failure is that they could be so much better and you listen to it and it's boring they're almost good they they're all they could be almost good maybe even like i you know you'll listen to the first album and i actually part of this is you know i used to really like working guard back in high school and i you know the first album you listen to the first song and it's got this pretty you know good like aggressive riff that's pretty long and has a you know has a non-standard uh you know shape in terms of the chord phrasings and things like that and it you know just comes out blasting and then the song just slowly like meanders and peters out and goes nowhere by the end of it and most of the album ends up ends up relying on superficial superficial aesthetic things like I don't know the the tone of the acoustic guitars at a particular part, or the fact, hey, I use clean vocals right here. They they really like this. This this is this is the problem here. The problem here is the songwriting more than anything. All these superficial aspects, all this musicianship that actually is like pretty good, but the songs go nowhere. And I guess that would be my answer for why I picked this band. That's very interesting. Um, so. When he chose this band as a sacred cow to slaughter, on a few occasions I had attempted to listen to them on Spotify, and each time I didn't make it past like half a song. So, um, <laughs> you know, I tried to do my homework for this episode, but unfortunately, I, I did come unprepared because I just could not stand them. Um, and I'm saying that honestly, like I could not stand the music. Um, I, I'm not into the the type of melodicism and metal that they do at all. Um, but I do have an anecdote about Bork Nagar. Um, and, I, and I will share this anecdote because the person involved is now getting back into extreme metal. So um, once upon a time, I was briefly living up in Chicago and had uh, met up with this guy named uh, David Kincaid. Was phenomenal, phenomenal drummer, one of the best drummers in the U.S. And I'll say that unequivocally. Um and but he had a back then at least I, he's probably matured by now but he had a bit of an ego um which i did too um and one time we were drinking and he was just pretty it was a dick measuring contest essentially where you know i was fresh out of the air force and was wanting to do some music again and uh um so we we're talking about bands and musicians we had worked with etc cetera, etc cetera. and he just kept going and going and going and you know he was the drummer of Borgnagar, like 
they had hired him to do drums and he also played drums in Soulfly. Um, and, uh, but he was the type of guy who would, uh, he would drink and be friendly, but at the end of the, at the end of the night, he wanted to be the top dog no matter what. And he'll, um, definitely, uh, show his accolades as much as possible and throw it into the face of the company that he has. Um, but anyway, uh, he's the type of person who would, uh, call Carl Sanders at like 2 a.m. just to prove a point and say, hey, I know this guy from Nile and they're a big band, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. But I know now um, he is getting back into extreme metal for a long time. He was uh, uh, really obsessed with uh, trains and railroads and all that. And um, I looked at his Wikipedia. Well, it was actually in England last year because he came up in conversation, oddly enough, when, when I was hanging out with Shelly and one of Shelly's friends, and uh yeah he might be on the autistic spe autistic spectrum i don't know but uh he's really 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 obsessed with training so maybe now that he kind of stepped away from extreme metal um he'll approach it a little bit more maturely he's definitely one of the best drummers out there though but when it came to actually like drinking with him and being buddy buddy it was really really hard to you know maintain like a good friendship with him but that's my my anecdote about the former drummer of nagar yeah, Bortnagar kind of represents a certain phase in metal, kind of like uh, early 2000s was probably the period where it was almost viewed, even though it was maybe not explicitly said that often, as a sort of fusion of neo-folk and black metal. And kind of like with our discussion on progressive and groove metal earlier, that whole idea, that concept kind of became a gateway for making black metal that sounds even more like pop music um except you know pop music in the sense of like the kind played on acoustic guitars um and uh so in that regard i can see why roman would be irritated with them it's not so much that they've had a massive impact in the sense in the sense of being over you know in the sense of being overrated but more so that the esteem with which they are held as being like a sort of band with a sort of a really profound and poetic sense of melodicism is uh, vastly uh, like and is a vast exaggeration of what you actually get you know in their content yeah I think I'd agree with that in the and sorry to raise them again but I'd, I'd raise Opeth and Enslaved as kind of falling into that because they both really hit their stride in terms of popularity in the early 2000s as well and they both established this uh yes yeah, sort of neo-folk kind of element to their music um mixing it with more proggy elements as well and at the time because this was at the time when i was first discovering extreme metal through the beloved cradle of filth and when i would be talking about it either with people online or in in real life like i really like cradle of filth and i've heard of um like arch enemy or carcass or whatever what what would you recommend next and they'd say oh you need to listen to opeth or whatever and it'd be listening to them and you'd kind of get this acoustic ballad followed by these sort of flat wrists. And what I liked about Gradle of Filth was like the adventure and the drama. And obviously I was young at the time, so I didn't know any better, but then, you know, I stumbled upon Emperor, early Emperor at the time, and that was it for me. But all of the metal at that time was going in this very, I'll just call it sort of bland direction where it's trying to, dial back the extremity and kind of tap into something a bit more thoughtful. And there is space for that. But Borknagar kind of, they don't do it in an interesting way. 
Um, like I'm with Roman on this. I, I absolutely adore that molested album. I think it's absolutely incredible. And I do kind of boggle at the irony that uh, they started Borknagar to kind of build on that and expand into something different. And it's just, they've gone in this kind of sort of acoustic version of Stadium Rock. Like the, the self-titled debut is, is a so-so black metal album, but then you, you skip through their discography and you get to sort of the latest stuff and it's basically Stadium Rock. The vocals are all clean. The choruses are anthemic. They're written in verse chorus structure as well. Um, and they're just anthems to Norway or whatever. And they're kind of sold as like, what if enslaved, but good. But they're not even that really. They're de- they don't even try and push any boundaries in any particular interesting way. They kind of just, yeah, kind of take this like crossover of heavy metal, black metal and neo-folk and just turn it into stadium rock almost. Have any of you heard their most recent material? I've, I've listened to True North. Is that their latest? Uh, I don't know if that's their latest, but I heard a song from theirs. And when I say most recent, it might be a couple of years old that sounded, and I'm not just saying this for effect. It sounded exactly like Imagine Dragons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I did listen to. I tried to listen to a couple songs from that album, and I, I like, I, I couldn't make it through one song. Um, I, I had a lot of difficulty there. Um, but I did listen to some of the older materials. Like, oh yeah, I've heard this before, and I didn't like it. You know, when I was younger, I still don't like it now. So, um, but yeah, they tap into like this really poppy accessible melodicism that it's not challenging at all it's fucking wallpaper and that's what i can't stand and roman is completely correct you know they're essentially one of these all-star bands where they have bits and pieces from a lot of bigger you know more well-established bands like you know bloodbath started that way too and bloodbath has a lot of the same issues um where they create you know a lot of poppy like the eaton song is this very generic poppy uh, metal song where you would expect like you know these guys coming from the Swedish death metal scene would write some like shit like Dismember but you know it's very far removed from that and Borknagar certainly they have a lot of elements from Norwegian uh, black metal and they totally dropped the ball in that regard and instead it's like they're just working on their retirement it seems like a lot of their songs have over a million views or listens on Spotify so that shows like they're really fucking popular but it's just stale and just wallpaper melodicism. And because of that reason, I cannot get into it at all. And I have, it aggravates me to listen to it. So um, I, I can tell they're talented musicians. And I, like when I knew David Kincaid, their former drummer, like he was one of the best drummers in the U.S. at the time. And it's interesting that he's getting back into extreme metal now because if he's able to sync up the right people, they might be able to create some really fucking cool stuff. Just getting a really phenomenal drummer who's unique. Like we had Dauber Beverly on here. He's phenomenal and he has his own distinctive style. David Kincaid is the same way where you can tell it's him and it doesn't sound exactly like anyone else. Whereas you listen to like Marduk's drummers, it sounds like dime a dozen uh, drummers out there. Um, so yeah, I can tell there's definitely a lot of potential there, a lot of unrealized potential, but it sounds like what they're going for isn't really an artistic statement of any sort. It's more just cashing in on the fame from their other bands. And now the fame from Borknagar being so big, um, creating essentially commercial music. So that's my thoughts on Borknagar. 
yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate statement right there. Uh, I think another reason I cho- chose them is again, it's, it's a band for me. That's like, yeah, the unrealized potential. It's almost good. I mean, when I'm thinking about working car, I'm thinking about the first album and then that's pretty much it because, you know, the further you go on, the worse it gets. I remember I used to really like, uh, the, the second one, the olden domain when I was in high school. Uh, and yeah, you know what, it was, it was a good suggestion by Kevin because it's something that I even think I ask him every once in a couple of years. You know, because you reevaluate albums you used to like, used to listen to, you come back to them later. Uh, even ones that like you've decided maybe later on it was bad. And you're like, oh, I kind of remember liking it. I want to give it another chance again. So I do that. I, I've done that every couple of years for a while with the first Borknagar album. And as much as that one is the best one, it's still at the end of the day, very boring. And yeah, I can't get through the whole album. <laughs> Yeah, so, like, I, yeah, I kind of put them in league with like Arcturus. You know, they're they're yes, I I would call Arcturus worse though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean they're they're made of bits and pieces from all these other bands too, and um, they they create wallpaper. Other than the the demo from Arcturus is actually one of the best like black metal Norwegian demos I've ever heard. Um, definitely check that out. I think it's called Mother in Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, there, there's there's only two tracks, but both are really really fucking good, and I hold it in high regard. But when it comes to their actual albums, no, it's, sorry, this is fecal. Get out of, you know, put some Febreze on it. It stinks. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, any final thoughts on anything that we've discussed today? Um, perhaps you want to say something positive about Gojira, so it's not a complete shit fest on in regard to that band or. Or do they deserve the complete shift best? So, um, any final thoughts? The most positive thing I can say about Gojira is that you know, I, 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 they're so bad that they have made me forget the backhanded compliment I was going to give them. Something like at least them being around means i i can't remember but no no I we're can, gonna end I this can offer with something shitting on them okay go ahead shelly i can offer something and it might be a cop-out but uh i was listening to them earlier today and there was one riff that reminded me of fear factory and i got nostalgic for fear factory because they were another band that i liked when i was 12 or 13 and i was like well if i if i was younger and gojira got big when i you know before i discovered emperor they might have been a gateway band for me so they might be for some people, a gateway into better things, as all of the bands I've mentioned today probably are. Like, you know, I don't think they're good music. I don't think they serve a purpose um, other than just <sighs> making a mess of what I hold dear. But if they do manage to get one or two individuals into quality metal, then it's not been a total loss. So uh, the kind of conception that I have for Gojira, even Borknagar to an extent, and like other band, bands you had mentioned that kind of follow suit, like uh, Opeth and things of that nature. I kind of think that mu- music is created for, um, of course, it's created for mass consumption, but more of like a live setting too, where they're able to go up there and show what they're doing on guitar. And it's really like a spectacle, I should say. Um, for the modern day kiss, like. You've got you've got the anthemic choruses. You've got the the chugging groove riff where the pit gets going. You've got the um, like the brainy 
solo or whatever where everyone gets to marvel at the technicality of it and then you've got like really danceable rhythms like it's it's all just yeah it's all packaged for that kind of brand of entertainment yeah that's what i really like the the kind of aesthetic i have it's like this is music made for the stage not the studio um you know studio you want to create like the most authentic version of the music that you can whereas you know up on stage you want to please the crowd so um that's the kind of vibe i get from them um you can you can make brainy mu- brainy music work on stage like you can make a really authentic profound metallic statement on stage but yeah you're right it won't necessarily please the crowd it'll be a specific audience that gets into it um and if you write music just with the audience in mind, then yeah, you probably will end up with something like Gojira. Um, I think that's the point. Yeah. 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 You nailed it. Thank you. Um, Tyler, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, as an example of bands that do brainy, but cool music live and on their albums, uh, you have things like the first album by oblivion, uh, you know, killing technology and dimension, uh, Hatros, Hatros by Voivod, uh, you know, Atheist's uh, P- uh, Peace of Time and Unquestionable Presence. Uh, I'd even put, controversial statement, I know, uh, Pestilence's album Spheres up there you know, as, a, as a candidate. Uh, all bands that do a kind of brainy approach that's, that is uh, also has interesting sense of melody and melodic development and song structure. Um, and they don't sound a bit really at all like alternative rock or stadium rock. Um, but then you get all these other bands that are supposedly like progressive in the same camp as these groups. And honestly, a lot of a lot more, you know, that are called progressive and sound like alternative rock or stadium rock. But yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that they do compose their music largely with uh, their audience in mind, you know, a lot of like more underground metal specifically is just trying to, project a certain vision and says yeah if you don't understand the vision then uh, it's not for you oh well move on somewhere else like black metal especially in relation to dark throne did that uh but yeah i definitely think that gojira and perhaps bork nagar uh and i would say even marduk were definitely composing with the audience in mind well as an experiment and as someone that doesn't play guitar myself like you can find YouTube videos. I have a live footage or someone just playing through some of these songs on guitar uh, and just mute it and watch the way their hand moves over the neck of the guitar when they're playing, say, a Demolik riff compared to a Gojira riff. And you can piece together the ontological differences between between the two styles of composition just by watching it without even listening to the music. You can see the motivations behind the music play out just by the way that the hand moves across the, uh, the fretboards. All right. We ready to wrap this up guys. Have we, have we reached our, like the end of our steam for trashing on these bands? Uh, perhaps. Um, what is Italy like? Is it filled with old people and is there garbage all over the place? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You already mentioned that to me before. Yes, there is a lot of trash, but, you know, I've been to Chicago and I've been to, you know, Detroit and there was a lot of trash in those places, too. Um, not really sure about the, the ratio of old people to in the U.S. Uh, because, you know, I guess our elderly population is rising, too, as a sizable portion of our, you know, demographics. Um, 
But other than that, it's been really awesome because this has been the first time in my life that I have seen like buildings and monuments and works of art that are uh, older than uh, three centuries. You know, I spent my entire life in Kansas in the United States and never really went out of the state that much and only ever been out of the country one time when I was too young to remember it. So uh, I haven't had this experience before. So in that regard, it's been really cool. Cool. Well, glad you're having a good time and glad you have a good internet. You're in your hotel, I assume, right now. Um, yeah, I'm at the hotel right now. Yeah, glad you're all able to join today. Um, so, Shelly, thank you for joining. I'm sorry that I called Dark Throne for girls, but I truly do believe that. Um, and let me I mean, don't apologize to me, Jason. Just just apologize to your, to your inner sense of justice and gender equality. That's all I ask. And... Like, Dark Throne is for I don't, girls. I don't view it as a bad thing. I like, you know. No, you said it was because it's accessible, which is a generalization. But you're right. Dark Throne is for girls. It's for everybody. Listen to Dark Throne. I think they're an amazing artist, but well, I think that what the scene is out there. what the scene is doing to their reputation is is a bit is a bit disreputable right now. But you too can anyway. be a princess if you listen to Dark Throne. But anyway, thank you for coming on and. Uh, Thanks, Jason. From the hatemeditations.com and the Metalesian magazine, and definitely subscribe to his YouTube channel. Very entertaining videos. And uh, of course, his podcast is hosted there as well. And I want to thank him for that. Um, Tyler, thank you for joining all the way from Italy. Hopefully, no problem, man. Happy to do it. I am devoted to helping out with the podcast. Glad to have you here and have your input. and have a, a wingman essentially for when Shelly and I diverge. Um, and Roman, thank you for joining today as a special guest. You've never heard Cromlech or Into Oblivion. Check them out. Get some authentic Canadian metal. Thank you, Roman. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great. Uh, yeah, and uh, Jason, I just want to tell you my favorite work by you is Irishman in a Potato Field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a <laughs> ditty. Um, Wow, that's really far down the rabbit hole. So, uh, <laughs> a potato hole, we should say. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I mean, I mean, it is a nice little ditty, and I don't know if you're being truthful or not because I wrote better compositions than that. I, I, well, I think you can. Uh, I think you can divine from the fact that I brought it up. Uh. <laughs> yeah, down the rabbit hole. Well, thank you for checking out the the tunes, Roman and. Ooh. I've checked nope. out my fair share of Cromlech and uh, Into Oblivion. I like Into Oblivion a little bit more than Cromlech, um, just because I'm not into uh, clean vocals that much and uh, some of the power metal. I know it's not power metal, but like more like epic doom power metal-y stuff. But uh, I think you know it's very competent for what it is. And if the listeners are into like Man of War and you know like epic doom, definitely check out Cromlech and uh, Into Oblivion is more on the doomy. And uh, they, they factor in a lot of different instruments in there, too. Like, all of a sudden, there's a violin coming out, you know, smacking you upside the head. So, uh, very cool stuff, very cool stuff. Um, Cromlick's new album, Ascent of the Kings, is out now on Hessian Firm. Check it out if you have the time. Thank you, Roman. Yep, thank you. And, uh, yeah, no, always enjoyed Goatcraft, actually, unironically. So, cool. it's, uh, it's nice to be on the same podcast. Yeah, yeah, good to have you here. I might invite you back later. If Thanks. we do something similar to this, um, cool.